You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary South. We exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission by seeing the lost redeemed, the redeemed matured, and the matured multiplied for the glory of Jesus Christ. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarysouth.com. If you would take your copy of God's Word and join me in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. I've entitled our time in the Word this morning, A Cautionary Tale. A Cautionary Tale found in Revelation uh, 2, 1 uh, to 7 this morning. So join me there. Either turn on your Bibles. It's probably hard to see up there with your Bibles. Uh, you don't have quite the light that, that I do, but uh, I'll read it for you uh, this morning. It may be on the screen behind me. I'm not sure, but um, let's get busy and look into God's Word. I want to read it, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll dive into this text. Is that fair? All right, let's do it together. And to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, Why I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and you have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Ah, change in the text. But I have this against you that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen, repent, and do the original deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Parenthetical, he says, yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. In conclusion of the matter this morning, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together. As we turn our attention to God's word, I just ask that you would take your word and that you would apply it to our lives, uh, that we would appreciate the necessary affection of maintaining and keeping and cultivating our first love. Lord, I pray particularly for this church plant, that it would flourish, and that it would be healthy, and that it would love Christ, and it would love its community, it would love people. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things, and as this text says, You'd help us to open our ears and that we'd learn and apply this text to our lives this day. We ask this in the name of King Jesus. Amen. Again, I've entitled our time together this morning, A Cautionary Tale. I want you to know that I love uh, the local church. I'm totally into the local church. The local church is kind of my jam. And, and the reason why is because Jesus loves her, and he gave his life for her, and that's why I love the local church. You have to understand what you're doing as a church plant. You are 
God's strategy to reach Calgary. The church is the hope of the world. The local church is the hope of the world. And she's the bride of Christ. And she's the custodian of the gospel. It's absolutely critical that you uh, know that and that you engage in that and exactly what you're doing in planting a church here in Calgary. You see, where the church flourishes, the gospel flourishes. So if you are healthy as a church, then you will have a big impact on this city. Where the church flourishes, the gospel flourishes. Now, I recognize that there are no perfect churches. But as Mark Dever once said, among the imperfect, there are healthy churches. And I know your pastor, and I know what you're up to as a church plant, as I engage in church planting every single Sunday. We strive to plant a healthy church and to make a difference for the sake of the gospel in our local context. And for you, that's here in Calgary. And to this end... Church planting, we labor and we strive. And the passage before us is a stiff reminder from the Apostle John about the necessity of protecting and caring for and cultivating first love. Because as you grow as a church and as you flourish as a church, one thing that we can be tempted to leave behind is our love for Christ, our devotion to Christ. This is a cautionary tale that we do not do that, that we fight for first love, that we fight for our affections, that our affections are red hot towards our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me tell you what's going on in this passage and why it's so significant. What's going on here is the church of Ephesus was precise. They were doctrinally accurate, as you saw when we read, but they were deficient in their love. Let me say it a little bit different. They were precise, but dull or cold. They had indeed reversed the biblical model. The biblical model is for you to delight in the Lord, and out of that delight comes duty. You can see clearly in the text that they were emphasizing duty and maybe a little bit of delight, but not much. So they end up going through the motions. They end up checking the boxes, right? On the outside, they appear because of their busyness and their activity and their defense for the sake of the gospel, even against the Nicolaitans in their community. They seem so strong on the outside, so robust, so, so rooted in doctrine but they were ultimately deficient, is what Jesus is trying to remind them. You see, the Apostle Paul and all of the apostles had kind of a singular fear. And you need to know that. It's the fear of Quentin. It's the fear of myself as a pastor. It was the fear of John. And it was the fear of the Apostle Paul. And that is losing your affection for Jesus Christ and going through the emotions. Listen to the Apostle Paul remind us of this fear in 2 Corinthians 11.3. He says this, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. There it is. Did you see that? Paul, the Apostle Paul says, I am afraid 
John, here in this text, is deeply concerned here in writing the revelation for Jesus Christ that they have left their first love. That's the shorthand of what we're talking about today. It's a fear that we all cultivate and have in our hearts as pastors. And so I come to you this morning to lay at your feet to consider this issue of first love and fighting for your affections for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll put it before you that it is the fight of your life to keep red-hot devotion towards our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let me give you a little bit of context because I know we're parachuting into the book of Revelation. You're currently going through the Mark, the book, the Gospel of Mark. Strangely enough, I'm going through the Gospel of Mark. Strangely enough, we're at the same chapter uh, in the Gospel of Mark in our church plant as you're going uh, through the Gospel of Mark. So we're mixing it up a little bit. We're going to dive into the book of Revelation. But in order to do so, we need to give you a little bit of context, right? So that we don't take this text out of its context and kind of abuse it or misinterpret it or subinterpret it or overinterpret it. We just need to understand what is going on. It's kind of like going from black and white to HD. That's what context does. It goes, oh, I see what's going on. Oh, I see what they're struggling with. And so we kind of ask, you know, so what of the text? That's what context does. We ask, so what? And then by the end of the text in our time together this morning, we should be then asking, now what? What are we going to do about what we've heard and what we've learned today? So, so what and now what is in play as we study this particular passage? Well, the year is A.D. 95, first century A.D. 95. Uh, the church of Ephesus has been going strong. They're strong as garlic. About 40 years, as a matter of fact, they've been, been, been uh, tough as new rope. Uh, they're just killing it and crushing it on every single level. level. But something happens in A.D. 95, something changed, and the wheels started coming off, and they were still doing all the things that they would normally be doing, but something was lacking. They couldn't quite put their finger on it. They knew that something was strange and something was uh, out of the ordinary uh, for them, but they couldn't quite put the finger on it. But Jesus does as he writes them a particular letter. And so the goal of our time this morning is to prioritize first love, and if we have lost it, to regain it, and we do it quickly, all right? That's my goal this morning. Let me give you some further context, a, little, a couple more pieces of information that will serve us well. The church itself of Ephesus, that's who he's writing to, the church was established in A.D. 52 by the Apostle Paul, all right? By A.D. 57, uh, Paul writes to the elders there from Miletus, uh, his challenge to them in, in Acts uh, chapter 20. In A.D. 62, a decade later, Paul wrote to them the epistle of Ephesians. As you know, uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, those kind of prison epistles there. Um, he wrote the epistle of Ephesians, and he's commending at that time their faith and their love. It's a strong, healthy letter uh, to the church of Ephesus. And this particular church, Ephesus, experienced stellar leadership. I mean, they have had the, the creme de la creme of leadership. They've had Paul. Uh, Paul sent Timothy, they had Aquila and Priscilla, they had Apollos. They've had now the Apostle John pastoring them. So they've had some kind of, you know, big fish here uh, pastoring this church. So they've experienced a lot of great teaching. In A.D. 66, so they are established in 52, 
A.D. 52. In A.D. 66, John shows up as their pastor. The apostle John here, who's the revelator, the writer here, and he pastors them. He pastors them uh, up until about A.D. 93, where he is sentenced to the island of Patmos, which is nothing more than a first century concentration camp. It was a brutal place. It was a brutal island, and it was uh, designed to extract out of you submission. And so John is on the island of Patmos. One Sunday morning, if you remember reading Revelation chapter 1, he wakes up and Jesus shows up, taps him on the shoulder and says, I got some things. I got a job for you to do. You're going to write the last book of the Bible. You're going to write the final story, right? And it's going to begin by addressing the churches that you were shepherding. So not only did he pastor in Ephesus, but he pastored seven specific churches in Asia Minor, kind of like a loop. Um, and he pastored all seven. He, was, he provided oversight to all seven of uh, these churches. And uh, he, he provided great leadership for them. Uh, they are in Asia Minor, which is a first century term, modern Turkey today. That's where it is today, uh, these seven particular churches. And for 40 years, he has been crushing it. The churches are healthy. Um, stuff is going on. But time has passed and, and uh, some water under the bridge. And the wheels start going off in, in, uh, in the church of Ephesus here. And so Jesus shows up and he's going to write a letter to each of the seven churches and he's going to point out, as a faithful shepherd, he's going to point out some things that they're doing really well. And then he's going to point out something or many things that they're doing poorly in the hopes that they would repent and stop and make the right corrections to keep the church healthy. Again, as a church plant, we're striving to plant another healthy church in Calgary. Not a perfect church, right? Because you joined it, and I, if I joined it, then it would be imperfect. So it's not a perfect church. But among the imperfect, there are healthy churches. And so what we get to do this morning as a privilege is eavesdrop on another church plant in Ephesus, now a mature church, and see how they've dealt with their timeline and their history in their last 40 years and see what Jesus is going to say about them that will then inform us as we strive to plant another healthy church here in Calgary. So as we approach this uh, text, what you're going to see is there are tons of strengths. This is a fantastic church. This is the kind of church you would join, um, but they have one uh, weakness, and it's an Achilles heel for them. So as we approach the text this morning, note that there are seven letters to seven actual churches, and we're looking at the first of seven so kind of put yourself in their shoes. Someone comes in the side door here, gets all of our attention, and says, I have a letter. It's from the Lord Jesus himself, who has perfect intelligence and discernment and knows everything. And this is how you're doing as a church plant. That's what this letter represents. That's the feeling and the context for this particular letter. What I want us to do is walk through this letter and I will provide for you five unforgettable lessons from the church in Ephesus at the end of the first century in A.D. 95. Or for us, five lessons for church planting and making sure that we keep our affection, we keep our love for the Lord Jesus Christ at bullseye. 
right? Dead center. We keep our affection there. The first of the five, as you're writing these down, the first of the five is this. Don't be afraid to plant churches in hard places. Don't ever be afraid to plant a church in a hard-to-reach community or a hard-to-reach place. As a matter of fact, the darker it is, the brighter the light of the gospel shines. Um, When we solicit ideas to to plant churches, uh, what is not on the agenda is, is this going to be easy? Uh, is it, is it going to be smooth? Are they, are we, everybody's just going to be receptive to us and they're going to roll over and give their lives to Jesus Christ. No, church planning is hard work and I appreciate you being here and I appreciate your sacrifice in being here, but it's hard work and you need to recognize that. And I particularly like to plant churches in hard places. I find it the most exhilarating. I mean, if you're going to give your life to something and your family to something and you're going to sacrifice for something, you want to do it because it matters, right? You know, you, you, you want to, you want to, it ought to have a little bit of like, you got to have some moxie. Uh, to be a member of a church plant. Like, we're just like an elite force, you know? Everybody else has got bowling alleys and gyms and we got popcorn. You know, the kind of thing. So, um, you know, it, it's, just, it's just part of the deal. But Jesus said, look, you're supposed to be salt and light. So we're to push back darkness as a church plant. Uh, we're to be the community's conscience and preservative and, 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 to, and to, to, to remind them of what it means to, to live a godly life. Well, here's what I want to remind you about this first principle. It's, the, it's uh, the church of Ephesus. It's located in the city of Ephesus. And to appreciate that, you need to know a little bit about the city of Ephesus. The city of Ephesus was like New York City today. Bustling. No hick town was Ephesus. It was the greatest city of modern Turkey or Asia Minor. It was the center of commerce. It was called the gateway to Asia in the first century. It was a free city, meaning um, it participated with Roman politics and Roman taxation, but was not ruled directly by the Romans. They were a free city. So they, they paid their tax to Rome, but didn't have Rome's oversight, which gave them a lot of liberty, a lot of freedom to make decisions on the political level. It was home, though, most important to one of the seven wonders of the world, and that is the temple of Artemis, a.k.a. the temple of Diana, which she is this hideous, overweight uh, fertility god. And so you can imagine, if that's the focus of the temple, what they participated in. As a nonprofit, they had three primary focuses. They were a museum for fine arts. They were asylum for runaway prisoners. And it was a house of prostitution. They had over 1,000 prostitutes. So as the kids went to school every day, on the hill in Ephesus was the temple of Artemis and Diana. With all of its prostitution, with all of its immorality going on, it was just thick in darkness. It was messy. It was nasty. Um, you know, it was repulsive, especially to a follower of Jesus. I want you to know that's where the apostle Paul planted a church right at the gates of hell itself. That's the way it ought to be. We go when we plant to hard places. And I would encourage you, even in Calgary, it's it's a hard to reach uh, people, right? So very similar. 
We don't go because it's easy. We go because it's right, good, and beautiful. And when we are healthy as a church and we are head over heels in love with Jesus Christ, people will note our love. They'll be drawn by our love. They'll want what we have. And they will be drawn to Jesus Christ. So it's a perfect place for a church. It's messy. It's an unlikely place for a church. Messy. I work with uh, planting some churches down in Mexico and we elected to plant in the Sinanola uh, Valley. And Sinanola Valley is where all the drug lords are. It's so bad that literally when I land in Los Mochis, I have two armed guards provided by the government my entire stay. If I go to get an ice cream in downtown El Fuerte, I go in, they clear everybody out, I go in and get an ice cream. It's really embarrassing as a pastor. But it's so dangerous, it's so bad, and there's such an opportunity for kidnapping and I'm such an easy target that uh, they want to protect that for tourism reasons, for all these reasons. So the government actually provides it. And people say, why are you, you know, just to let you know, El Chapo, which is the most famous of the cartel, was caught in our town. That tells you how dangerous it is. And you know what we did? We just deposited a church planter, blink, right in the middle of the cartel. So far, so good. But I can assure you, it's a dangerous place. Like Ephesus... You go to hard places. You do hard gospel things, right? That's what we do, and I want to encourage you in that. And so when he's writing to the church of Ephesus, you just read, oh, Ephesus, that's cool. I know about Ephesus. Yeah, Paul planned that church, and they had some great leadership move on. Hey, it was a tough place. They were under persecution. Domitian was ruling, and he's going to put their pastor in, in, on the island of Patmos and persecute him, and he's going to make little rocks out of big rocks. It's cold. It's dank. I mean, it is some serious thick persecution going on. And I love it because God said, we're going to plant a church in Ephesus. We're going to deposit the gospel in Ephesus. And so it's a reminder to us that church planting is a bit crazy. That's why we're in it. And it's the perfect place for a local church when it's messy, dark, and crazy, right? And that's the first lesson I want you to see. Never be afraid to plant a church in a hard place. That's what you're doing. Look around you. Look at how many people God's provided right here in the southern part of Calgary to make a huge, huge difference. The second lesson I want to provide for you is this. Jesus audits his local church with perfect discernment. Jesus audits his local church with perfect discernment. Take a look at the text with me. He says to the angel of the church in Ephesus, the angel... Angelos, messenger, is a synonym for the pastor of the church. That's my position. If you want to know the different terms here, they are defined in verse 20 of chapter 1. You can look at that later on your own if you want to know what a lampstand is and an angel and the stars. They're all defined there in verse 20. But for our sake, let's just dive in. The angel of the church. So he's writing to the pastor of the church of Ephesus, and he says this, the one who holds... Here's who's writing. The one who holds the seven stars, those are the seven pastors, in his right hand is the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Those are the actual churches. He says this. So there's two things to note there. He holds the pastors in his right hand and he walks among the churches. It is a reminder to us that Jesus is worshiping with us this morning. He is always, in every church plant, the unseen guest. 
You don't see him, but oh, he is here. He is fully aware of what you're up to. He is fully aware of what you need. He's fully aware uh, of, of everything. And he holds Quentin personally accountable to the task before him. He establishes his authority in the beginning of the letter, right? If you received the letter and you don't, what, the way we look at a letter, right, we, we go to the end and see who sincerely, who signed the letter, who's it from. They go, oh, that's from, that's from Jimbo. Jim Bob from down in Kentucky, that old hick down in Kentucky, he wrote the letter, and that's how we do a letter. In the first century, they'd write up front, here's who's writing the letter. It's the Lord Jesus, the one who holds and walks among his churches and has the right to make the declaration in the letter that he's about to say. Why? Because he does it with perfect discernment. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He sees everything. Now, that can be a little bit fearful, but it also can be very comforting, can it not? It can be a little bit fearful if you're off the reservation and you're being crazy and, and, and sinful. But it can be very comforting to know that Jesus is here. He knows your needs. He's going to provide everything you need as a, a plant. I love the word, this word hold because it's the word in the Greek language for like an intense grip. He's got like a death grip on the pastors. He holds them accountable. It doesn't mean you don't hold them accountable. There's two layers of accountability. But first and foremost, if he's not scared of Jesus, he's not going to be scared of you. If Quentin's not afraid of Jesus, he's not going to be afraid of you. So it starts with Jesus holds Quentin, right, as your pastor and your elders also are in that same space. He holds them and he walks among us. He's keenly aware of everything that goes on. That's why our worship should be passionate worship. We don't come in here with passivity. We come in here engaged. We come in here fired up to worship, right? That's what we do as a plan. And this is particularly important. Why? Because they're being persecuted. They're pastors in jail at the time of this letter uh, being read. I mean, they need to know that Jesus is on scene and he's the unseen guest and he walks among his churches. He has unfettered access to this church. He knows everything. He knows what's going on in your heart. And the Spirit of God is working in your heart. It's an amazing thing as a teacher of God's Word. I'm, I'm pretty tight to my notes. I know what I'm saying. But oftentimes, even in my own church, after I'm done, some woman will come up and say, Hey, when you mentioned this, this, and this, I just was so convicted. And I don't correct them and say, I didn't say that. Why? Because the Spirit of God's working in their life. He's saying all kinds of things, things that I'm not even saying, just like he's doing with you. Your mind might be going over here, might be racing here, and just uh, thinking about this little piece or that little piece, right? That's the Spirit of God. They're unfettered access to us as a church plan. He comes and goes. He sees us. He's with us. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. He knows everything. That should bring a bit of fear, and it should be a lot of comfort that he knows your needs from the get-go and he audits us. He has perfect discernment. So what Jesus is about to say about the church of Ephesus is spot on. It's dialed in. Laser-like focus. That's what Jesus is going to say. And we know this, right? We know this from Psalm 139. Where can we go from his presence? Nowhere. Where can we hide from him? Nowhere. My, far, my thoughts are far from him. Yep, he knows them. He knows everything about us. Both pastor and people should appreciate and be thankful for 
the presence of Christ at our gathering as a local church plant. And it's an intense audit. Because you see, you can fool the elders and you can fool Quentin and you can fool me. But I'm going to tell you something. There's one here today you're not going to fool. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. So you could look sweet on the outside and be all jammed up on the inside. Jesus knows that. That's why he's calling for repentance. That's why he's calling for change. So Jesus audits his local church with perfect discernment. Second lesson. Third lesson. Jesus is a master encourager. Jesus is the master encourager. He's not using false flattery. He's spot on. And encourages them. And encouragement, as you know, is like fuel to a fire. Part of what you do when you gather as a church plant is have encouragement. You're encouraged by the word. Even when you're convicted, it's an encouraging thing, right? And you want to be encouraged. I want you to know that your Lord and Savior cares deeply about your church plant, is highly engaged in the church plant, and is the master encourager in this church. Isn't that fantastic news? He's the master encourager. How do I know that? Let's check out verse 2. He says, I know your deeds, your toil, your perseverance. You don't even tolerate evil men. You put them to test. You can smell a hair tick a mile away. That's what he's saying. He's saying, he's just basically going, bravo. I mean, you are dialed in. Doctrinally speaking, you're spot on. You've got, look at these words, bold preaching, fervent prayer, passionate worship, purposeful discipleship, courageous evangelism, strategic church planning. Bang! Whew. Almost did a dab, you know. I mean, it's like, that's killer. Like, well, the church of Ephesus is awesome. I promise you, if you looked at their seven characteristics, and before there was a nine marks in Washington, D.C., there were seven, and there are seven in this text, seven things that Jesus points out and says, you guys are crushing it. You're doing fantastic. They were like the few, the proud, the Ephesians, you know, like the Marines in the United States, like the few, the proud, the Marines. They're like the few, the proud, the Ephesians. I mean, this, this group is unbelievable. Let's take a look at what he says about them. We'll just kind of walk through real quickly, but it's important to see how he encourages them and strengthens them. First thing he says there in verse 2, Oida, I know intimate knowledge. Oh, I know. I've seen it. You're the real deal. Authentic, true and true, right? Intimate knowledge. Humanly speaking, you're full of zeal and effort. He says, I know your deeds, your service for the Lord, you know, your, 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 your intense service. I mean, just setting up all this. Hey, I know it. I, I, uh, we, we set up our church every week like you do in a school. We have the trailers. We have the towing of the truck. Who's towing what? I get it. Your intense service is notable and appreciated, right? Same is true here. He says, I know your deeds. I know your service. I mean, they had holy sweat coming off their brow. He says also, I know your toil. This word toil is an interesting word. It means to work to the point of exhaustion, right? I mean, it's hard work. It's glorious work, but it's still hard work. And he says, I know your perseverance, that you, it means to remain up under. Why? Because believers have big shoulders. They're made to handle things. They're made to, to handle hard things. It's intense. It's intense. It's heavy. The load's heavy. There's intense pressure. Basically what he's saying in shorthand in modern vernacular, you're tough as nails. So they have intense service. 
They're sweat coming off their brow. They're tough as nails. They're persevering. They're getting it done for the glory of God. They're doing everything for the glory of God. They're carrying heavy burdens, right? I'm telling you what. If you read verse 2, that's my kind of church. I promise you, if you were living in Ephesus, you would join this church. You'd go, man, I'm in. I'm all in. I'm going to put my family there. I'm going to raise my kids there. Everything about it. I'm, I'm all in. Finally, he says, look, you're not gullible. Can't pull the wool over this church's eyes. They know both with the Nicolaitans in verse 6 and then in verse 3. He says, you've tested those that say they're apostles, but they're really not. They're false teachers. You're not gullible. There's zero tolerance for false teaching. The elders have put up a fence around and says, hey, no, no. We're not perfect. We don't know everything, but... But doggone it, we're going, to be a, we're going to be a sound doctrine. What's coming out of here is going to be a clarion, clear voice out of Quentin. Sound doctrine. And they were, they were, they were nailing it. They were precise. Just like I want to be precise. And Quentin wants to be precise. And the elders want to be precise, right? So they're vigilant in, in their doctrine. Let's say it like that. They're really vigilant in their doctrine. And they were honoring what Paul had told them earlier. Remember what Paul had told them earlier? He said in 1 Timothy 4, 16, he says, pay close attention to your life and to your doctrine. So on the doctrine column, man, they're killing it. Just unbelievable. Well taught. The whole counsel of God. Plowing through the gospel of Mark. Pericope after pericope. Word after word, phrase after phrase, just washing God's people in the word. They were, they were just amazing. It's just unbelievable, unflinching. The latter part of this, verse 3, look at it, in his accommodation to them. He says, and you have perseverance and endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. This is all a reference to persecution. Domitian's persecution was brutal. Um, They never threw in the towel. They never quit. The darker it got, the brighter the light shined. They just stayed the course. They persevered. They endured. They weren't weary. Um, They endured the suffering. They had all the quit knocked out of them. When I was in uh, the Navy, I did five years as a rescue diver in the Navy, and I had to go through a lot of physical training. And the guys that were training us would always say, my job is to knock the quit out of you, boy. That's what happened with this church. They had all the quit knocked out of them. They had persevered. They weren't going to throw in the towel. Not the, not, not the church of Ephesus. Because why? Their doctrine informed their emotions. They had it right. They got it right. They were, they were getting it and thinking through all of the different things they needed to think through. And, the, and they were going to persevere. Again, I say... Sign me up. This is the church you want to join, right? This is the kind of church you want to be a part of. Fourth lesson I want to give you. Fourth lesson is this. Jesus delivers a stinging indictment to his local church. A stinging indictment. There's sweet Jesus... And we often preach that. But there's also clearly the temple Jesus, (laughs) right? Where he's honest with them, he encourages them, he's a master encourager, but he's not going to sweep their sin under the rug. You see, they have seven strengths. 
And when you look at those seven strengths that I just walked through briefly, you kind of go, okay, look, we're, we're all imperfect. We all struggle with something. What's so big? What's the big deal, Uncle Dan, about one itsy-teensy small sin? One, just a sliver of weakness. What's the big deal here? Why is this such a big deal? It's a big deal because it's an Achilles heel. It's a big deal because if you reverse the order of delight and duty, things can get really messy really fast. It had only been 40 years, folks. So they're a mature church, but man, what went wrong? Where did they go wrong? And look what he says there in verse 4. But, strong contrast, but. So seven positive things, seven affirmations, but I have this against you. You've left your first love. Oh, no. You've lost your affection. Forty years. And now an indictment he gives. Their hearts had grown cold. They were busy. They were going through the motions. They were killing it on their doctrine. But what they were failing is on their life. You see, Paul said, pay close attention to your life and to your doctrine. Both matter. So what they did is pay close attention to doctrine. Why? It's easier. It's easier to study yourself clear. It's a whole other spiritual discipline to keep yourself pure and on fire for the Lord and cultivating your relationship with the Lord. It started showing up by maybe not loving their community, calling them sinners and forgetting that it's one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And maybe looking down on the community, looking down on those crazy people in Calgary, right? It possibly appeared and they were less generous, starting to show up later and later, not giving of themselves. Maybe a little bit of zeal had waned, so they were going through the motions, but maybe grumbling, complaining. Maybe there was a climate of suspicion, suspicion in the church. What are those elders up to? What are they doing when they meet? Crazy dudes, they're sinners like we are. What are they up to, right? So there's a little bit of suspicion going on there, right? And so Jesus says, hey, I have this against you. I got a problem. There's a sin that needs to be addressed. The tone changes. But, he says, I have this against you. It's a catastrophic sin. It's a death blow. Something was missing. Their first love. They'd grown cold. They'd grown dull. So they got, listen to this, they got an A in duty and an F in devotion. And what they've done is they flipped it. And they said, we're going to get busy and work hard and we're going to be precise. But that precision doesn't, doesn't change our affection for the Lord. That's the way doctrine ought to always inform your love and increase your love. If your doctrine makes you angry and and you, nobody wants to be around you, you're missing the whole point. So what you do as a church plant, you scoop up a big old handful of doctrine, and then you go love people with it. If you pick up a big old scoop of doctrine, and you end up being mean as a snake, that's a problem. That was the church of Ephesus. Folks, you got to guard your affections. you got to maintain your first love. It's absolutely critical why is it so critical? 1 Corinthians 13. Let me read it to you. 
If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If you don't have love, you're like an incessant barking dog in your neighbors. And in Calgary, that would be a big deal, right? Because for whatever reason, you have more land, you own more of North America, and you've chosen to put all your houses in these little tiny... Did you guys notice that? What have y'all been doing? Like, I need to help you with development. Seriously, I'll come in. I'll spend a weekend. You, your on-ramps, I lose, I lose attention on your on-ramps. They're so beautiful. They just whoo, sweeping monster snag-a-nappies. You know, just wow. Just awesome. And then you pack all your houses on one block. Knock that off. You got more land than any of us. Use your land. Okay, that was free. But if you have a barking dog in that community, when all those houses are tense like that, that would drive the whole neighborhood nuts. Yeah, that's you. If you don't have love, but you're really dialed in in your doctrine, you're an incessant barking dog, Paul says. A noisy gong. Then he says, hey, what if you got the gift of prophecy, and you know everything, and you've got all knowledge, and you have even all faith as to remove mountains, which is kind of what I'd love to have is to have a gift, a mountain-moving gift. Wouldn't that be awesome? Like just to kind of... Let's move Sunshine Resort over here. Boom. You know? Let's take Norquay and move it over there. Let's move BAMP south where we can have access to it. Easier. Right? So wouldn't that be a great gift? Huh? And if I have faith to remove mountains, but I don't have love, what am I? He says nothing. Goose egg. I'm telling you, love's a big deal for a church. How shall... Men know that you are his disciples when you have love for one another, right? This is a big deal. But what had happened is they, they got cold hearts. They got dull hearts. They, they were, they, but here's the deal. They look spiritual on the outside because they're super busy. But their hearts are empty. They'd forgotten their first love. But Jesus doesn't sweep it under the carpet. He's the master encourager, but he's also faithful. He's like a faithful shepherd. You know, the shepherd's crook is, uh, it has two ends to it. On one end, you reach out, and you'd grab those wayward sheep, and you pull them a little bit closer. Maybe doctrinally, you reach out, and you hook them, and you bring them a little bit closer. Say, hey, you probably need a little, know a little more of the scriptures. But you flip that shepherd's crook around, what? And there are fewer sheep, you bonk them on the head. Because they keep trying to run out of the herd, and they get eaten by lions in Palestine. There were lions into the 18th century, and they'd get eaten. So that shepherd would protect from lions, and he'd be bonking those things in the head. There is a time for Jesus to reach out and bring you close. But in this case, he bonks them on the head to get their attention. That's what's going on here. You've done seven things fantastic. You should join this church. It's unbelievable. It's fantastic. But... You've left your first love. Final. Fifth lesson. Fifth lesson here. Jesus doesn't leave us to our own devices. This is so good. He doesn't say, hey, you messed up. You've lost your affection. You're doctrinally sound, but boringly cold. Right? You're flatlined, your heart's empty, you've dropped the ball, I'm moving on to another church plant. Nope. He engages. Look at 
Look at this. It's unbelievable. He says in verse 5, Therefore, if you find yourself here, and again, it's a cautioning tale. I'm not saying you are here, but if you find yourself here, he gives you a way out. He doesn't leave you to yourself to say, all right, I'm moving on. He, he, he calls for a change. He calls for edits, right? He says, therefore, remember from whence you have fallen, repent and do the deeds that you did at first or else, or else. First thing he says is this, remember. Memory is the handmaiden to revival. And what he's saying is go down, stroll down the, 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 the memory lane when you were first saved and when you had, think back when you had fresh first love, right? And some of you have been on the planet a long time. Some of you have been a believer a goodly amount of time. And, and you, you honestly, you're just kind of going through some of the motions here. But remember when you sat in church and it was like Quentin, every word he said, he was like directly speaking to you. Remember that? Yeah. You remember when worship was sung and, and tears would stream down your faith, face and it was like earth shattering and new and fresh? You Remember when your heart was full of encouragement and you could only find and catch people doing something right? Like you just constantly were seeing like, man, that's so good. That guy there, look what God's done there. What he's saying is the church of Ephesus had forgotten and it's a possibility you've forgotten. You've forgotten the value and the primacy and the importance and the prioritization of first love. And you've lost your first love, sir. Ma'am? You've lost your first love. You need to remember. Remember where you walked off the path of sanctification. And you're a little lost, lost in the woods of doctrine. And you need to return to the straight, to the old path, as Psalm 139 states. So he says it begins, it's a threefold process. It starts with remembering. Second thing in the text, look at it. It's a plan, it's a strategy. Jesus is perfectly trying to help us think through how to gain first love. So this is how you do it. If you've lost it, you remember. Second, you repent. You turn. 180 from the direction you're going. You turn from your sin. You turn from your apathy. You turn from the, the lack of affection here, right? And you repent of that. Say, God, I... I'm a fool. I've walked off the path of faithfulness. You have to have a change of heart that results in a, a change of action, right? 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confess your apathy to the Lord this day. Ask for his forgiveness. Remember when you stepped off, then repent of that. And listen, repentance ought to be a way of life for you. It is for me. It is for your elder team. Proverbs 6.23 says repentance is a way of life. You're always going to be repenting. James 4.8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you, right? You can't go forward with your faith and with Christ until you go back and realize where you stepped off the path of love and fell into the sea of religious activity. Got to remember Second, he says, you got to repent. And then he says, third, redo. Redo. And do the first works. 
It's not a deeper life. It's straight up disciplined life. That's what the Christian life is. You're to love Jesus with all of your heart. Paul says to work out your salvation, work it out to the point of exhaustion with fear and trembling, right? You return to the basics, like reading your Bible and praying and memorizing Scripture. You don't outgrow these things, folks. I've been in ministry 32 years. Guess what I'm still doing? Memorizing Scripture. You say, well, you're doing that because you're a pastor. No, I'm doing that because I don't trust my heart. I, I am tempted to walk away from my first love just like you are. We're all tempted in this area. I work out my salvation with fear and trembling. I'm, I'm very intentional about it. So I return to the basics, to the sound doctrine. But your sound doctrine ought to produce sound love. And it's always delight in the Lord, and then what follows is duty. If you mix those two, I promise you, you'll be a legalist. You'll double down on duty. You'll point out everybody else's lack of working. You'll get all jammed up. But it's always delight informs duty. Duty never informs delight. Never. Delight in the Lord. Gain your first love back. Bring the joy of the Lord back in your heart. If not, without love, Jesus, Paul, had said, you're going to be nothing, Right? What if you don't? Look at verse 5. What if I say, you know what? I'm not going to do it. I'm going to do it tomorrow. Maybe you're a classic procrastinator. Tomorrow. Well, let me tell you something. Tomorrow's the devil's day. Today is God's day. Today. So look what he says. Or else I'm coming to you and remove your lampstand out of its place. What does that mean? He'll blow out their light. He'll shut down the church. You see, there's three strategies out there, by the way. I just want to remind you of them, right? There's, there's church planting, right? And there's also revitalization of churches. And then there's church pruning, whereby they're taken out. They're gone. They're cut off. He blows out the light. You say, unbelievable. Yeah, guess what? All seven churches... They don't exist today. So somewhere between the first century and the 21st century, whoosh, lights out. And you know what? If they, go, they, they, they sin like that, I'm okay with that. You know, honestly, there, there's, there's some churches that need to close their door here in Calgary. <laughs> and it's okay to pray like that. Lord, shut them down. They're an offense to the gospel. You see what I'm saying? Like, there's, there's all this is a part of the strategy. But he says, listen, if you, don't, if you don't do that, I'm coming in judgment. I'll blow out your lampstand, right? Well, 50 years, let's give you a little bit of a history lesson with the church of Ephesus. This is 8095, right? 50 years forward, 50 years forward, Ignatius writes from Antioch and applauds them for their repentance, their love, and their faith. So 40 years, they lost their first love. Another 50 years, they got it back. They got their theology screwed on straight, right? And so it's like awesome. They're killing it. Fast forward to A.D. 263. They were conquered, burned, and destroyed. They could have probably blamed that on the situation and how the city was being conquered and they're just a part of you know, the just rainfalls and the just and the unjust and there's some truth there. But I'm telling you what, you don't walk with the Lord, you don't love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, 
lights out. Judgment on them. And they don't exist today. It's a cautionary tale. Indeed. But there's an invitation there. Look at it. Oh, oh just a note to verse 6 because it comes after this. I, I just think because Jesus is a master encourager, he just has to go back to it. You know, he, he kind of, you know, he kind of throat chops them on the first love deal and then he comes back around and says, hey, man, but those Nicolaitans, they're crazy. I mean, they're bad. Kind of drops a little deposit there and then comes back around. And here's the invitation for us this morning. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is true of all churches. This is true of this church. We want to be hearers of God's word. And as James says, hearers and doers of God's word. We listen and we obey. That's how you hear. And as you expect good expository teaching, I expect a good and Quentin expects good expository listening, where we're not just hearing, but we're applying, right? So we always ask of any text, we begin by asking, so what? Now we turn the corner and say, now what? What are we to do with this information? Here's what you're to do with this information. You're to make sure that you don't reverse duty and delight. You're to make sure that you have first love, that you're moved with compassion, that you're able to shed a tear for the people going to hell in your community here in Calgary. You, you, should, you should have and be on fire for the Lord starting tomorrow, starting today. You should be on fire for the Lord, right? It's worth it. You should fight for your affections, right? If you've got to give up a little bit of study because it's messing with your affections, do so. Get after the affections, right? You've got to have first love. You've got to own first love, right? He says if you do it, he says you'll be an overcomer and you'll participate in the tree of life. You'll, you'll prove that you're truly in the faith and you'll enjoy the tree of life. You'll enjoy eternity. It's, syn- it's a synonym for eternal life. The tree of life produces life, eternal life. And look at me, look at me. John, uh, John said this. Jesus came to have, give you life and to have it more abundantly. He wants you to have the best life possible. That means you've got to maintain that relationship. You've got to maintain first love. Why? I'll tell you the greatest love story ever told is that Jesus, the King of Kings, courted us, left heaven, walked on streets of gold, came to the ghetto of earth, courted us, lowly peasants that we are, pursues us, seeks relationship with us, and calls us his bride. That's why. Don't ever forget it. Don't ever lose your first love. Fight for your first love. Because the gospel is the ultimate Cinderella story where the king of kings picks his peasant Girl, us, his bride, to have a relationship with him and to spend eternity with him. If you don't know Jesus this morning, our request is you'd find somebody here and we can introduce you to him. I can talk to you, Quentin, the elders can. We'd love to introduce you to the Savior that we're talking about here, the one who actually wrote this letter. 
If you're here this morning and you're in Christ and you're a believer, then we would ask that you would search your heart and make sure you have first love. That you, you, you grab a big old scoop of doctrine, a big old handful of doctrine, and you go love people in this community. God will bless this church. You won't be a perfect church. You'll be a healthy church. And you'll prize the proper order of delight than duty. If you reverse it, it's miserable. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Lord, I pray that this church would be a healthy local church. I pray that you would give them red-hot devotional love for you. Lord, I pray that they would continue on and grow as a church and reach this city. And you'd remind them that you're fully aware of their situation. You audit with perfect discernment. You show up every Sunday faithfully. You're the master encourager. But you don't, you don't let us get away with our sin. And thankfully, you don't leave us to um, our own devices. It's the beauty of the gospel, that there's forgiveness and repentance and change. And Lord, I pray that we would all be head over heels in love with Jesus today. In your name I pray. Amen.